Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Today's episode of the Bravery Academy, I'm joined by Sharon Casey. Sharon is a radio presenter at the Edge Afternoons and a TV presenter, plus a podcaster, as well as a mum of two. In today's episode, we will be covering some sensitive topics around fertility, mental health and anxiety. Sharon shares so beautifully her vulnerability around these, these brave moments in her life. And there's a lot of wisdom in how we can, as women, learn to find your voice, whether it's on radio or in all aspects of life. Welcome back to the Bravery Academy. My guest today is Sharon Casey, and I'm so excited, Sharon, to have you here for lots of reasons. I just think you're quite inspirational, first of all. Oh, wow. Yeah, and you may not have realized that, that I thought of that for you. But also, I just think there's something so fun and playful, and so I think whatever comes out of today, there's going to be a little sprinkle of Sharon joy in it. So thank you for jumping in today. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. I was just saying to you before we started that my dog does this thing where (laughs) as soon as someone pushes record... She starts like making hates of noise. So just let me know because literally as soon as you push record, she's now decided to roll around all on the floor. So if you can hear that, let me know. No, it's all part of the entertainment, right? Right. So Sharon, I want to get to know you a bit more as well. Can you tell me about, first of all, where you're from, so where you've grown up and where do you live now? Okay. So I was born in Porirua, which is like part of Wellington. And then uh, spent most of my childhood in South Canterbury, so Waimati for a few years and then up to the big smoke of Timaru. But my dad worked in banking, and so they restructure quite a lot. So when I was 13, we moved to Christchurch for about nine months, and then we were back in Wellington, which is where my mum's family is from. And I lived there until I was 17, but I left school when I was 15. And I just always liked working and being around older people. School just wasn't my vibe. And then 17 years ago, I moved up to Auckland to work for The Edge. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) When did mental health become an issue in life? I don't think we knew what it was, but I think as a grown-up, looking back, I reckon my earliest moment of anxiety was 
I used to do tap dancing and I loved tap dancing. I was good at it. I loved it. I was passionate about it. It was this really fun thing that I could do with my mom because my mom used to like hand make all of my costumes and her and I would go to the competitions and it was this really positive thing in my life. And then I went to school one day and I'd taken some medals I'd won as like a show and tell and got made fun of. And I went to my tap dancing lesson that night and I remember I just completely shut down and I didn't want to do it. I remember my mom carrying me out of the thing and she just said to the teacher, she's like, oh, she's just really cold. And when she gets cold, like, and basically was like, what is going on? And and she basically carried me out of the class and I never, I never tap danced again. That was the last time I never danced again. And that was also like a time when I was starting to experience bullying for the first time. And so I think my mom was like, what the hell is going on here? All the things I was really good at, I no longer wanted to do. And I think that that was probably knowing what we know now, that was probably the beginning of my mental health issues. But back then, nobody talked about it. Nobody educated parents about it. So there was no way that people would put a a name on it. My teachers just continued to tell my parents that I had ADHD when I didn't have ADHD. It was just like, oh, no, she's got ADHD. It's like, I don't have ADHD. I've got anxiety and I learn differently. I don't learn by being told to sit down, shut up and listen, you know? And I think that's a really cool thing about school now is they have different ways of teaching different kids because we all, like, learn differently. I think you sharing that's really massive because you go, well, first of all, my brain is in that survival mode. How am I going to function and learn? If you don't make me feel safe in my work and my school environment with the kids around me, with the teachers that are supposed to be nurturing me, how do you expect me to be the best version of myself here? Yeah. And I think that you can definitely go through my school reports and go through the classes that I succeeded in. And they were with the nurturing teachers, the encouraging teachers, the teachers that were positive and they realized that kids learn in different ways. And I remember my school dean told me that I shouldn't take any school C classes because there's no way I would pass, so I should take the applied classes. And I was like, if you are telling a 14-year-old, like I could have passed school C if I'd actually tried and I'd felt like people believed that I could and my parents believed that I could, but my teachers didn't. And I think... That had a really big impact of telling a 14-year-old that they can't, they're going to fail at something they haven't even tried yet, fail at something they should be able to pass when they're just an average student. Like I was by no means bottom of my class. Yeah, that was quite a thing because I would just go to the class and be like, oh, no one thinks I'm going to pass anyway. Everyone thinks I'm useless. And that was just a thought starter in your brain. Mm, exactly. That just keeps rolling on and rolling on. And the influence that people have in your life is massive. Oh, yeah. So it was one of the greatest days of my life when I found out this particular teacher retired, for sure, because I was like, great, no more kids are ever going to have to feel the way that I was made to feel at school. So how did it evolve from there? So knowing something didn't feel right, that the thoughts kept coming in, how did it shape you through your teens and then on from there? To be honest, I haven't really overly thought about it until right now. So shiver me timbers, we're getting deep. We're going um, deep. I think it... It definitely severely affected me with like belief in myself and that it's all right to be myself. And I don't think that I learned that until my mid-20s. And even now I'm 37 and I have those days where I'm just like, 
I literally had one two days ago where I was in tears at work and I texted my boss and I said, I'm so sorry. I just feel like I'm letting everybody down in my life right now, even though I know I'm not, but I feel like I am because it's like to juggle work and to juggle kids and husband and friends is, you know, it's hard. So I think being told things like you're not going to be able to do that when with a little bit of encouragement, I would have been able to do that at 14 was really hard. Like I remember, this is actually kind of funny now, but someone made fun of my sideburns at school and they were like, you got big sideburns. So I went home, lathered them up with my dad's shaving Shaving. cream, Mm -hmm. shaved them off. But at this point in my life, I was always outside. I was always playing sport, always outside. I was only inside when it was nighttime or class time. And so I had a big tan line of where my sideburns were. And so I read this girl and I was like, oh man, like I've got these sideburns. So then I was like, getting my mum's sunlight out, burnt my face because I was trying to like get a tan and then I gelled them back. And I thought I had totally grown out of that. But then last year we were doing the stupid thing on here and it's like that saying like she's a 10 but she sleeps in her socks or whatever. And as a gag because he panicked, one of the producers goes, she's a 10 but she's got big sideburns. And out of nowhere, instantly like that, my eyes just filled with tears and I was like like laughing but it was just because it instantly took me back to that moment and it's the same as like getting made fun of because you didn't have boobs and and all that sort of stuff all of it kind of sticks with you and I think I am really conscious of educating my boys on that that we don't we don't comment on people's appearance or anything like that especially in a negative way I think when you said you found yourself, it's good to know yourself at 25. I'm like, that's amazing. Like, people aren't getting into their 50s and 60s and stuff. Well, even then, like, just more so. But it was, it's, <laughs> it's even just things like, do you notice as women, I don't wear makeup that often now, mainly because I can't be bothered. And I think also there's just a stupid thing with getting older, I think, where there's young girls in the office that are so gorgeous so you're like ah oh, what's the point like I'm never gonna look like that so what's the point and so I just like ah and so I just don't wear any makeup but as women someone will come in and you're not wearing makeup and you're like oh sorry I apologize well sorry sorry I haven't made any for you today or whatever but no one ever says that to dudes you know it's like it annoys me like we have to have like a full hair and makeup to do anything and it's like oh I'll be any shoot. I'm always there two hours before the boys are there and, and things like that. It's I'm just, just laughing because when you were about to jump into this recording, I was like, I haven't got the right top on. I didn't change. We're like messed up to like, like who are we proving it to? It's a funny podcast. No one's listening to what you're wearing and seeing and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I still have this moment of like, oh no, I've got to be a certain way. And we do it. We put on the mask because this is the uniform. This is the way we show up to be hopefully accepted as what we want, right? There's not many um, parents that would say the best thing that a kid ever did at 15 was leave school, but my parents will stand by that. They're like, it was the best thing she ever did was leave school. It's amazing, right? Even though that was super challenging. Yeah. I mean, it was super challenging teenage years for them, and they taught me some very harsh lessons, but they were lessons that I needed to be taught. When I was like 16 and I'd left school, but I didn't want to follow the rules, and my dad said, if you can't follow the rules, you need to find somewhere else to live. And I was like, okay. And then he was like, you need to find somewhere else to live because you're not following the rules. So you're not respecting our house. You're not respecting us. Find somewhere else to live. And I was like, huh. I thought he was bluffing, but he was serious. Um, and so I moved out of home for like 
six months when I was 16 and I went and lived with my boss Carla and her partner and that was the best thing that could have happened to me and I look at it now and people are like can't believe that you had to go and live somewhere else when you're 16 but it was the best thing I ever did like I don't think I spoke to my dad that entire time and he didn't help me move my mom helped me move and my mom would secretly give me money when I needed it but Carla was awesome in the sense of I wasn't scared of her but I knew that she didn't take any shit so she was like Tuesday night we clean the house and we go and do the shopping that's when we do it and I was like okay yep and she was very like this is how we're doing it you can either follow the rules or you can get out that was the best thing I think that could have happened to me because I couldn't talk back I would never talk back to Carla and Shawnee ever I would never have talked back to them and I think that was like a big key in me having to grow up because I had to pay my way I had to work seven days a week and yeah that that was the best lesson my parents taught me for sure huge so amazing how'd you lead into the media piece then obviously it's like that's made for you but there's got to be a bridge to get from there to there well my dream was to work my dream was to own a music store and so after I was working, I was working in the supermarket at Woolworths. That's where Carla was my boss. And then I moved home and my parents were like, okay, so what do you want to do with your life? Like, I was like, oh, I really want to be the manager of a music store one day. I really love making the displays. And then my parents found an open polytech course, which I did at home. So I did a small business management and cool. a merchandisers course. And so I had two diplomas. And I was like, yes, finally a qualification. <laughs> And then just by working there, I ended up getting a job at this music store. I kept harassing my now friend Shane to give me a job. And a job finally came up. And then Shane moved from the Puriroa store to the Lampton Key store and he got me a full-time job there. And I was like, oh, look at me catching the train of my winter coat. <laughs> and um, one day Shane was like, I'm, I'm running the signing tent at Edgefest, which was like a concert that Edge used to do. And Sean Joyce, who's the marketing manager for Sounds, he's going to be coming down and like, it's really big, you know? And I was like, oh yeah. And he goes, do you want to work in it? And I was like, how? Yes, I do. And when we were there, Sean, who's passed away now, he said to me, JJ, Mike and Dom were on stage doing something. And he was like, you could do that. He's like, you could absolutely do that. And I was like, oh my God, I love the edge. That's JJ Beanie. I can't believe I've got a poster of her on my wall at home. I braided my hair like hers. She's so cool. And he's like, why have the poster on the wall when you could be in the poster? And I was like, hey. Be the girl on the wall. Yeah. And so the next day I applied for a radio school that I found online in Wellington. And three days later I got in. And yeah, it's just real sad because Sean never got to see me graduate radio school and never got to see me be in radio and have the career that I've had but he had such a impact on my life that I never would have applied for radio school if Sean hadn't said to me you could do that and I'd always loved radio I just thought that it was like I want to be a Spice Girl it just didn't happen you know I didn't think it was a job like a job you could actually get like it was just one of those you know I want to be Taylor Swift I want to be on the radio I thought that that's how inaccessible it was so I just never even thought it was an option and when you actually became a radio host and stuff how did it feel did it feel like a bit of imposter syndrome or do you feel like this is me I'm nailing it well I finished radio school and then I went back to the music store and I was like I'm never going to get a job and then one of my tutors Jimmy rang me and he goes oh 
do you want to work in radio or do you want to work in a music store for the rest of your life? And I was like, well, obviously I want to work in radio, Jimmy. And he was like, oh, cool, because you've got an interview on Masterton on Tuesday. And I was like, huh, okay. And so my mum drove me over to Masterton and I had my interview and I got a job doing the breakfast show on More FM over there with this guy Brent. Wow. And I was also doing promos. And at first I was like, oh my God, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I just kind of went with it and just tried to learn as fast as I could. And I was definitely a little shit at times because I was, you know, 18 and have that classic teenager attitude. So sorry to Brent and Heather who dealt with me for a wee bit being shit. But then once I got to the edge, I was like, I'm not going to screw this up. I'm going to be here forever. For a long time. Can I screw this out? This is my dream and I'm going to nail it. And yeah, I've been there for 17 years now. Wow. Yeah, it was my goal to get there by the time I was 25, which a lot of people told me was unrealistic and I should get a more realistic goal. And I got there by the time I was 20. So that was very satisfying. So cool. I love what <laughs> your story really comes down to the influence we have around words. So I think that power of the, you know, those people that said, actually, you've got something really special. Here you go. Here's the opportunity. I had a friend like that, or she was a, my mum's cousin who took me to the States as a physio, is my background. And if it wasn't for him, I would not be doing what I do now. There was one little quote that he said to me, and he's passed away as well. He said to me, a little bit of stress is brain stretching. And that sat with me because I was like, oh, I love stress. It loves a good bit of stress. It's kind of drive, 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 drive. But then when he passed away, I remember thinking of Pete and going, yeah, but Pete, you missed the bit afterwards, which is too much is, is just not sustainable. And it's yeah. not the big picture for you as well with where you've come from, the anxiety and depression piece. How did you then go and look at treatments and help and taking that kind of control over it? I think it took me a long time. It wasn't until I finally like gave birth, you know, had my son here. So I heard the saying once that depression is genetic and anxiety is environmental. Anxiety is something you can really, you know, pick up on on other things. My mum's definitely a warrior. So I didn't want to expose my boys Yes, I want to expose them to vulnerability, but not expose them to my anxiety because I don't want them to then think that's a normal reaction. And so then my friend Lee was going through, I think it was just after she'd lost her dad, and she was like, I've been talking to someone. It's been really helpful. Like, you should go and do that. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to do it. I had tried in the past, and I just didn't click with anyone. And so I was like, I'll try one more time. If this person sucks, then I'm not doing it. And I really clicked with my psychologist and I was like, oh, amazing. And we worked through like a bunch of stuff and she was awesome. And then I think it was the second lockdown, I started having really bad panic attacks and things like that. And I went to her to have a session and she was like, I think that you need to go on medication. And then we did like a big pros and cons on the whiteboard in her office of like, what would the benefits be, why I want to take them, why I don't want to take them, blah, blah, blah. And then I went to the GP that after my appointment and talked to the GP and, yeah, it was really beneficial. And then that's when I started taking Sertraline. And my GP is awesome. I've been recommended by a bunch of friends to go and see a psychiatrist as well because they're basically, I didn't know this, basically like the experts on medication. So it's like you go to an oncologist for cancer, you go to a psychiatrist for medication for your brain. Thank you, Ms. Drew. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he uh, like fiddled with my medication a little bit and it was, yeah, amazing. It's been the best thing I've ever done. 
so much learning in that day. Eh? Like you can be in that state for a long time and also not know until something yeah. triggers it. How was that with having children then? Like with having pregnancies and getting pregnant, did that show up yeah. more, the mental health aspect? Yeah, definitely the anxiety within like getting pregnant and then the grieving of miscarrying and stuff. I never got like postnatal depression or postnatal anxiety, but it was something that we definitely discussed a lot with the midwife and the obstetrician to be aware of and what signs we were looking for because, you know, it was highly like it was on the cards because of how my brain works already. But I think being able to have those open conversations about it really helped. I was just something that we knew about, something we were wary of. And the more we talked about it, the less scary it kind of was. So I think that's like a really big thing that I've learned through the whole thing is the more I communicate, the less the monster emerges, which is good. And like now on my show, I'm working with two people I've been friends with for over a decade and we can, we will talk something out. Like if someone's feeling anxious or whatever, then we'll be like, okay, sweet. And then we kind of talk it out and it's like, cool. And then it's gone and it's not a thing. And like, so I think like communication is the key to life, like anything whether it's mental health, relationships, anything, communication is the key. So you've got that psychological and social safety in that workplace now, which must make such a difference. Yeah. I think it was Di Henwood that told me this once, that it's important if you bicker in front of your kids that you solve it in front of your kids. Because like, if you remember when you were a kid, if your parents argued, they'd always make up when you went to bed. And so you'd go to bed and then they'd be like, oh, sorry for being a jack club. It's like really stressed or like whatever. But you never saw the makeup in front of you. So then when we grow up, we have this like fear of conflict. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, when he said that to me, I was, that was life changing. I was like, oh my God, that's so true. Because I hate conflict, you know, like I'd be like, oh God, the world ends if you have conflict. So like, I definitely have people I feel comfortable having conflict with, people I don't feel comfortable having conflict with. Yeah. Is, is women more challenging? Yep. Definitely. Yeah. I find it more challenging for sure. I don't and I hate fighting with friends. Nothing is more anxiety inducing than having an argument with a, another woman. I just like, that makes me feel physically sick. And for me to do that, I have to like, really like, hey, hey, like, yeah. hey so do you want to talk about this? That's yeah. like, yeah, my worst nightmare. I really appreciate you sharing that too because that comes down to, <laughs> for us, for, for women, to understand yeah. where we feel safe and not feel safe. And yeah. it comes down to this research done in the early 2000s around, it's called tend and befriend. So the way we deal with stress is men are a little bit different. We still have flight or fight freeze as women, but we have this thing around other women, we need to feel safe, all about being yeah. in a tribe. So no wonder if you haven't got the right tribe around women around you, you don't feel safe because that was what you were taught growing up. Yeah, and it was also like my... So my first boyfriend, when I lived in Wellington, my first like proper relationship, he was a complete C word and he used to just yell at me and yeah, I've never really talked about this before, but he used to, yeah, he used to just yell at me and that's something that if we're in an argument, as soon if a Raise male voice. starts raising his voice to me, I will freeze or it will like. I will literally completely shut down. Like even we were doing a gag the other day when Nixon and I were having an argument, but we were trying to create an awkward moment. So we started having an argument in the staff kitchen 
And he got really into it. He's a very good actor. But then after, and everyone knew it was a joke, but I then went back to the studio and had a full panic attack about it because it was like really confronting. And I've had that in the past where I've had to be like, I need you to, like, it's cool if you want to talk about it, but I need you to not yell at me because that is going to like completely piece me out of this conversation. Like I'm just going to be out and done. Yeah. And I try not to yell. I'll, like if I'm having an argument, I'll, I'll keep it low. Like I'll be like, yeah, that's really cool. And then people think I'm being patronizing, but I'm just trying not to yell. <laughs> neutralize it, eh? To bring it yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We haven't been taught in society, in my generation, I think similar generation, 40, I've just turned 40, so yeah. uh, that we weren't taught what emotional regulation and what good communication look like. And our yeah. games. We're still learning about that. There's just so much to figure out. It's huge. <laughs> so, so where do we start? But where Can do we you- start on that? Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Can you tell me about your journey to being a mum? Yes. So I think like everybody, we thought getting pregnant is easy to stop taking the pill and then it happens and bang, bang, boom, you've got a baby. And initially that's what happened. And then we went to have our scan and they were like real blase that I had miscarried. And it was like, oh my God. And I had no education around it. Like no one even told me you're supposed to use pads. So I like went to work the next day and I remember Clinton Guy, who I was working with at the time, were like heating up my wheat bag for me, probably more Clinton than Guy, I'll be honest. Um, and yeah, and I was like using tampons for a miscarriage. Like what the hell was I thinking? Yeah, so then we tried again and it didn't work and then we tried again and that one didn't work. But that time um, I was like, I physically just can't go through that again. I can't. Because the nurse was like, oh, you know, 
you just need to make sure that you've passed the fetus. So you just need to kind of sieve through everything. And I was like, oh God. get fucked. Sorry to swear on your podcast. So I went to the hospital and that pure random, that was when we met our future obstetrician, Amar, and he figured out why I kept miscarrying and I had this like piece of tissue in my uterus that needed to be re- removed. So I went back three months later, he did that procedure, three months later that healed. And then next time I got pregnant, it was Tyson. And Amar was like one of the first people that I told, I found his phone number on the internet and was like, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. As far as I was concerned, I was absolutely one and done. I was like, this is it. I am <laughs> never going through this again. My body has had enough. And Bryce really wanted another one. And then I started getting this, it's a bit woo-woo, but I started getting this feeling and I started having dreams about this little boy. And I just had this like, sounds really woo-woo. And I remember one day I was like brushing my teeth and I was like, yeah, I get it. Cause I could feel, I could feel it. And it wasn't from anyone saying it to me. It was just, I could feel this little boy just like waiting, waiting for me with this. It's like, it was like this big presence of, of being like, Hey, are we doing this? Like what's happening? And it was really weird. I'd be sitting at work and I'd literally be like, because it just felt like it was literally sitting on my shoulder. It was weird. And then I was like, okay, we'll start trying. Like there's this little boy obviously waiting for me. And I actually went to a tarot card reader, that Kimberly Stewart that's on the traders. And she read my tarot and she was like, and I hadn't said anything. She was like, oh yeah, there's a little boy waiting for you. Like you're going to have another baby. It's going to be a little boy and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, weird. And then, um, I got pregnant and straight away I was like, it's a boy. And then my HCG levels are really high and they thought that maybe it was twins. I was like, it's, mm, I don't think so. I think it's just a boy. And as soon as I got pregnant, I stopped having that constant nagging feeling. It was like, okay, cool. You're in there now. Do your thing. And um, he's been an absolute bloody handful ever since. Every symptom under the sun that his brother didn't give me. He was 11 weeks premature. He's the most determined person. And so it makes sense now if I was having this nag of like, am I coming now? Am I coming now? Am I coming now? It makes sense to me because Ruben is the most determined person I've ever met in my life. And that kid is absolutely going to do some stuff. Like, I don't know what he's going to do, but he's he's going to make a big impact on this world. No one knows why he was early. There was nothing wrong with him apart from being early. And I, I think he was just like, I'm not sitting in here for nine months. It's boring as hell. I want to I want to do some stuff. And he's been on a mission ever since. He even will, he walks with purpose. It's hilarious. There's so much more to it, right? There's so much pain and grief as you go through that roller coaster. Yeah, totally. But yeah. what I love is that you're sharing that it actually it's really scary and, and that actually we're not supported in that process, right? But there could have been so many things done differently to help oh, equip yeah. you to feel yeah. like this is actually grief going through those miscarriages. Yeah. And that- I remember we had a miscarriage. The third miscarriage, the lady that did the scan was so nice and she was so gentle about it and she was so awesome that we sent her flowers and we sent her flowers and we're like this is a complete opposite experience what we had the first time and the way that you handled that was like yeah and we sent her flowers so just be like that was incredible and we'll never forget that much like we'll never forget the lady that was like not seeing it here well yeah it's, it's the lack and then there's the compassion and the empathy it's when it's not there it's so painful 
And yeah, yeah it's such a simple thing. And to recognize yeah. it, you know, if someone that's listening to this episode just goes, what if I just showed a bit more empathy and compassion to somebody? How will that change their day? Or actually yeah. their moment of grief? Yeah, definitely. That's very, very true. It's just, yeah. I, and I get it. My sister's a paramedic. But you see really awful stuff. You need to be able to come compartmentalize it. But she's really good at compartmentalizing it, but also treating a person like a person. Yeah. How has it influenced you as a mother? Oh, good question. I think with Tyson, I was a lot more patient and grateful because I was like, oh, it took us so long to get here, you know? And with Ruben, I think I'm definitely a bit softer with Ruben. Like yeah. when I'm supposed to be sleep training him or whatever, if I try and put him back his bed in a cup for a couple of times and then he's like, no, like he just wants a cuddle, like he just wants. And I think that that's also like a subconscious from being in NICU for so long and having so much kangaroo care that when he is sad, he needs you so much more. And and I think that I'm more appreciative of what Ruben's journey potentially could have been like being a baby that was born at 29 weeks and four days. He could have had a completely different journey. So if I have to cuddle him when he feels sad at nighttime and it means that I don't sleep, then I'm going to cuddle him at nighttime because I'd rather that than him having to deal with a bunch of stuff because he was born so early. I yeah. heard this phrase that just sticks with me and it represents what you're doing there, that motherhood is the physiology of love. Like that is love. Like that's oxytocin hit. That is just like, I just want to pour yeah. myself into you because that's that's who I'm meant to be for you. And yeah. we don't realize the comfort it, that we can give and how that nurturing it's going to be for them. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It wasn't even like, we've never had gastro in our house where the kids have had it. Tyson never got gastro until Ruben <laughs> brought home gastro. And I thankfully didn't catch it. Everybody else did. Oh. But no question asked. I made a makeshift bed <laughs> in the lounge. He slept on top of me. He spewed on me all night. Yeah. But I didn't care. I wasn't like, this is gross, whatever. It was like, yeah, well, wipe it off with a towel and carry yeah. on, you know. Just get but on with it. Be- so many people I'd let lie on top of me and spew on me all night. And um, Tyson and Ruben, the exceptions. Bryce, I'll Bryce just, had to sort himself out. Bryce, I'll just <laughs> give him a cushion for next to the toilet. <laughs> what did it teach you around resilience, this whole experience? I think that I'm way stronger than I thought I was. I thought I was a pretty strong person, but I'm way more resilient and way stronger than I thought I was. I'm way braver than I thought I was. And I just don't give a shit about some stuff that I used to give quite a lot about. If you're going to treat me like crap, then we're just not going to hang out with you. And I think when you go through something like that, you see people's true colors as well. And so you give more into the people that were there for you when you needed them the most. It's like a natural culling when you go through hard times. Yeah. Who could hold the the compassion when you needed it? Yeah. yeah. That's your people. Yeah. That's- I always remember, this is really weird, but Rihanna had a song and she was like, nobody texts me in a crisis because everyone would just assume that everyone else is texting me. And I was like, wow. I was like, I thought that Rihanna would just have like 500 unread messages. And maybe it's just a lyric, but still.
well, I'm assuming there's a mask that has to come on for the work stuff that you do, like you said, and then suddenly you step away from it. And then when it drops down, it's like, it's quite a lot to be. It's definitely an elevated. Yeah. You do have to be like, if you're crying, then you have to be like, (laughs) and then you go back to crying sometimes. Or I remember like, you'd have like a massive fight and then you've got to do the show and you'll just be like, not even looking at each other, but you'll just get through the show. You're like, oh, I'm so mad. Because it's like being in an arranged marriage. Yep. Like you have to work on it the same way as you do your marriage. You have to, like being on a radio show. And you have to communicate the same way. But I think I'm very similar. I, I never noticed it until Jono, when we were working together, he said in an interview, Sharon's ex- Exactly the same on air and off air. And she'll say what she thinks Amazing. on air and off air, exactly the same. And he was like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> well, that's why I asked. Like, I was like, I never noticed that. I'm like, I never noticed that before. But it's kind of like if I sit off air, that sucks. I'll be like, that sucks. I won't go on air and be like, you're right. That's amazing. Cause I don't, if I don't believe it, or I just like, I won't go on air and be like, that's my favorite song right now. If I've just off air being like, that is the shittest song I've ever heard in my life. I just won't acknowledge that song. I think working with Leon, my big, big boss, he's been my boss now for 17 years and he really kind of drummed it into me that even though he only gives me a compliment every six months, (laughs) I think he really gave me this belief in myself that it was okay to be myself. Mm -hmm. And that was like a very, a very big thing. Like I remember being in like a, a music meeting and someone was being super sexist and he was like, he leaned out the door and was like, don't lie to her because you think she's not going to tell you you're full of shit. He was like, she's thinking it. She's just being polite. And I was like, oh, okay. That person left and he pulled me into his office and he was like, don't let people talk to you like you're an idiot. He was like, because you're not an idiot. You know exactly what we're looking for. You know exactly what we're doing. So don't let people talk to you like you're an idiot. I was like, okay. And then after that, I think I needed to I needed to work on it, my delivery a little bit, but I, I tried my best to be like, nah, that sucks or whatever. Um, but he's always been really encouraging of me and my work to be myself. He was like, why would you say that? Everyone knows you don't think that. So he's like, I don't want to hear fake stuff. And I remember one day I was, it was the first time I did a shift by myself. I was doing the day show because Joe Cotton was away. And he came in, he was like, why do you sound so nervous? I was like, well, it's, it's just, you know, I'm never here during the day. And I just know that everyone can hear it and like, blah, blah, blah. And he came in, he pulled down all the curtains in the studio and then came around to the thing, turned the volume up. He's like, smile, relax and have fun. Don't give a fuck about what anyone else thinks. And then walked out. I was like, okay. And that's been my mantra for radio in the sense of smile, relax, have fun. And Anyone I teach now, I'm like, in the songs, don't be, you know, like turn the music up, enjoy the show, like actually experience it. He definitely taught me to be myself and it's okay to be myself. Yeah. And he pays me to be myself. So I can't be yeah. that bad <laughs> at this stage. What's bravery mean to you? And the ultimate bravery to be as a person that knows how to say no. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I'm trying really hard to get good at. Try really hard to get good at it. Really glad you didn't say no to coming on to this episode. <laughs> no, I'm thirsty. I love podcasts. 
<laughs> I love talking to you today. And I've actually been binging your podcast, The Sexologist. Oh, God. Sexo- Seriously, that is hilarious. If you, anybody hasn't listened to The Trainee Sexologist, how did you even get into that in the first place? Yeah, trainee sexologist was so much fun because Morgan's like one of my best friends and we grew up in radio together. Mm. She's always been so accepting of me, like flaws and all, and um, it goes both ways. And I've always said to Morgan, I was like, you have to be on here. Like it's such a waste that you're not on here. Like you're just so funny. And then she was always kind of looking for her passion. And then one day she saw the sexologist course because everyone went to her for sex advice anyway. And we were looking to do a podcast together and then that just, came out was we should follow your journey to become a sexologist and I was like hell yeah I'm into it and we did and it was a wild ride <laughs> so good and then obviously your other podcast and the yes. radio yes. Sharon Steph and Nixon podcast but honestly if you haven't listened to the trainee sexologist it is just it's a giggle it's fun it's play it's wisdom it is just bravery to me in many ways oh about thanks sex. you so thank oh, you yeah. so much <laughs> I had a full um uh sexual re- uh, revelation through the whole thing yeah it was actually really healing for me the first season the first season to me will always be one of the most special things i've ever done so cool. it was really cool oh amazing thank you so much Sharon, for your time your energy and your bravery to come and share your story like you said there were some questions today that you haven't talked about before and i think that is amazing and inspiring thank you oh well thank you for providing such a beautiful space i've also been nervously holding this dinosaur the whole time <laughs> <laughs> it's got you through the dinosaur has got, got you me through. through I love that dinosaur <laughs> awesome thank you for tuning in to the Bravery Academy don't forget to hit that subscribe button and if you're looking to take your support for the podcast to the next level visit patreon.com forward slash the Bravery Academy to access exclusive content and get early access to our upcoming episodes your feedback means the world to us So please take a moment to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for being part of the Bravery Academy community. Stay brave, stay curious, and keep challenging yourself to grow. Until next time.